Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 61, I speak with David Jackson, the Group Managing Director of the S Corp Group of Companies. We discuss why he worked on a boat for several years in Cairns and the value of being a mature-aged university student, how a job ad promising him travel opportunities and future equity hooked him into the world of recruitment, how he started two businesses that are simultaneously some of the fastest-growing new businesses in Australia, doing a combined $5 million plus per year in annual revenue. After taking more than a year off drinking alcohol, why the next step for him was to launch a zero-alcohol beer brand to better manage his own relationship with alcohol. If you're looking for human resource solutions, an IT project and consulting services across digital media, technology, accounting, construction, engineering, and office support, check out www.scorgroup.com. That's S-C-O-R-E. G-R-O-U-P dot com. So I'm here with David Jackson, the Group Managing Director for the Escore Group of Companies. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks, Derek. That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started the Escore Group of Companies? What did you study? What type of companies were you working in or what roles? Oh, okay. So, um, so yeah, when I finished school, I went to university in Newcastle and studied a Bachelor of Business. Um, and uh, sort of a couple of years in, I ended up taking some time out of university to go travelling, got a little bit disillusioned about studying and uh, did some travelling for a few years. Um, in that period of time, sort of worked on dive boats in Cairns um, and then uh, was overseas travelling through Europe and uh, America and then worked on a farm in, in Yorkshire for a year and then came back to Australia and um, finished off my university degree in um, Newcastle University. And then from there, I um, sort of fell into recruitment. And so what did you originally want to study before you took your gap year? Did you have a plan or you weren't sure and that's why you took the gap year? No, no, I always wanted to study business. I've had a passion for, um, you know, for having my own business ever since I was a youngster. My grandmother had um, dress shops and hairdressing salons, um, you know, and sort of I always admired her and then family friends that had businesses, I always admired their parents or their fathers or mothers that, you know, had these thriving businesses. My father was a doctor and my mother was a hairdresser in in our family business. But so, yeah, I, I always wanted to to have my own businesses. And, I mean, did you run any little sort of micro businesses as a teenager or anything like that growing up? Uh, <laughs> did I have the lemon, lemonade stand out the front of the house? No, I didn't. But I did um, But I did have a paper run when I was in fifth class at school um, for a couple of years, fifth and sixth class. So uh, I, learnt about, I learned about hard work and I learned about saving money um, at an early age. Um, and, uh, and then into high school, I didn't really have any businesses. Um, but then I came out of, came out of high school, went to university, 
didn't have a business, when and then did those did that sort of dropped out of university and did three years bit of a gap year, but um, you know the, the underwater camera camera business that I had on a dive boat in Cairns was sort of like a a sole trader, um, although I was working on other people's dive boats, but it was sort of generating my own business. Um, and then when I went back to university, I really sort of st- started my own business, which was in the entertainment field where I was managing bands um, and produced a, a, a theatre show um, before then realising that, you know, I better go and get a real job at the age of 29 and I got a job in recruitment um, and the rest is history. And so what did your sort of friends and family think? Like a lot of people take six months, maybe even 12 months, you know, to travel in between high school and university is a well-trodden path. But when you're in the sort of second year or the third year of doing that, did some people around you get a bit nervous? Like, are you going to ever come back? What are you What are you doing? Just to clarify, Derek, I actually went to university straight after school. I didn't have that gap year. Um, I, I went straight to university and I got disillusioned in my second year of university and said I was going to go for one year travelling, and I ended up overseas for th- overseas and in Cairns for a period of three years before I thought I'd better go back and get that degree. So, yeah, look, my parents, I remember my father saying to me it was one of the best days of his life, the day I graduated from university. I was his, I'm his youngest son of three boys and I'm the only one that finished, finished a university degree. Um, so my eldest brother studied law and got all the way through to to uh, nearly finishing, he had two subjects to go in his final year, um, and then he uh, he announced to dad that he was going to go and become a, um, uh, a work on a demolition site for six months before he was going to take a job on a yacht, uh, sailing a yacht around the world, and uh, he and that's all he's done ever since then. He's a professional sailor. So um, so when I finished my degree, yeah, dad was really happy. But look, during that time when I when I when when I was off. Uh, and not at school were people disillusioned with me not really because I I was making my own money I was living off my my own income um you know mum and all mum and dad always had said you know you need to complete that degree so I assume they thought I'd go back but like you know I mean I went back to uni when I was um what was I 18 19 20 I was about 25 when I went back to uni so mature age student I loved it and in fact I, I went back to university and I should have finished it in one one and a half years, but it took me three years to do it because I, I ended up getting getting myself voted onto the school council. I started a society at university, um, you know. We uh, then I started that business, that entertainment business, managing bands and actors. So, um, so you know, those that last three years at university as a mature age student were really valuable to me. Um, and you know, most people would have thought I would have ended up in the music industry, but. Um, but no, I didn't. I ended up uh, ended up going towards recruitment. And when you were away um, up north in in Cairns and sort of travelling and, and working, um, what what was the most uh, appealing part of that that kept you there? Was it the the freedom, the the novelty, the people? What sort of you know motivated you to sort of keep keep working up there and, and doing what you were doing? Yeah. So one of my eldest brothers. Uh, good mates was living in Cairns so that attracted me to go up there initially it was like oh Matt's in Cairns I'll go up to Cairns and I'll get a job up there and I you know got up to Cairns and Matt's flatmate said oh you want a job on a dive boat you don't want to go and work in a restaurant because straight away I went to get a job in a restaurant she's like oh and I'm like I've never scuba dived before and she's like no no I'll get you a job on a boat don't worry 
So, you know, I ended up landing the plum job as the underwater cameraman. I had to go and do a, do a video course. Uh, oh, no, I had to do a dive course. And then I, then I ended up working on, uh, on, on Tusa Dive and, um, and John the Yanks boat for a couple of years up there filming people underwater. So um, that, you know, what attracted me to that was I was, I was still young and can't, back then Cairns was thriving. It was backpacker city. There was tourists everywhere. Um, and, it, you know, there was lots of, uh, lots of nightlife. Um, and I had some good, made some good friends. So, um, and I was earning really good money. You know, I was, I was selling like on average 10 to 10 to 12 videos a day. Um, and I was t- taking the, 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 uh, I was taking the passengers into the nightclubs back in Cairns and getting paid to do that. So yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was good fun. Um, so yeah, that's what attracted me to Cairns. But at the end of the day, um, once again, it was time to move on and, and get back to university, finish that degree. And how did university feel after doing that when you came back? Like first year, you said you did straight after high school, so you're a teenager. How did that yeah. compare to after a couple of years being independent, like you said, oh, with all phenomenal. these people and partying and working? Yeah, it was phenomenal. It was like, it was it was awesome. I was back at I was back doing second and third year subjects with people that had just you know that were obviously four or five years younger than me. But you know, having that, having I'd, I'd been travelling overseas for two years. I've been in Cairns for a couple of years. Um, so having all of that worldly knowledge and going back and applying it to the university degree, I just got distinctions in everything I did when I finished the degree, although it did take me a few years to complete it because I was busy uh, with other, other um, you know, as I said, I was running the society and um, on the council and then um, and, and managing some bands and whatnot. But, um, but, yeah, I loved university. I loved going back as a mature age student. I was talking to my son about it the other day saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with, with having time off in between school and uni and as long as you know as long as you make sure you get there a lot of people a lot of people don't get back to uni you know so some people think it's better just to get it over and done with while you're in study mode straight after school but you know if you I needed to grow up I suppose that's what I'm trying to say (laughs) but um but I always laugh at it because I I look at it yeah the first time I got a job working for someone I was really sort of 28 29 years of age working for the English recruitment company in Sydney where I had to go to work at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and sit at my desk till six o'clock at night. And I remember ringing mum every day, just going, Oh, what am I doing here? I've got to quit. I've got to quit. I can't do this. She's like, just stick it out. There's a lot to be said about working for someone else. Carry on. So, um, you know, lucky I listened to mum there and, um, and, and stuck that out and really learned a phenomenal trade um, in recruitment, which is, which is not easy. And how, how did you get your first job in recruitment? Like I so said, you're studying business. You've been a, a bit worldly, traveling, working. You yeah, can deal with people. Yeah, um, how yeah. did they, did they tap you on the shoulder? Did a friend no, sort of bring you no, in? How no, did you no. enter the recruitment world? So I, the way I entered the recruitment world was I, um, I was answering ads. It was it was in it was 1999. It was I was answering ads in the Sydney Morning Herald to get a job in sales. I was like, okay, I'll go get a job in sales and, you know, go and learn how to sell and whatever. So the first one, I, first interview I went to was for Xerox salesman. Salesman didn't get that job. Next one I went to was for Parker Bridge, the recruitment company, and spent three hours in the board boardroom with the owner of that business, and then started there the next week, um, and uh, stayed with those guys for two years before 
the owner set owner backed me into my own business um, called Global Job Network, which we ran for a couple of years, and then um, started S2M, which I still own now. And do you think that experience you had made you present a lot better than a graduate that had just gone straight from high school through to uni who might have been also looking at an entry-level recruitment role? Absolutely. When I look at the people that we employed at Parker Bridge after me, most and all the successful ones like you know Brad Hart from Hart Recruitment, um, you know even Dan McLaughlin, and they, they were all they'd all had work experience. They were sort of either mid twenties or a bit older. Um, so um, although you know you look at my business now, so we've got a couple of these grads that are just phenomenal at what they're doing. So it's I mean they're they're, they're highly intelligent and worldly people I think um, I think back in my time you know having the having that that uh, that travel experience and that extra experience was good but I think kids these days are growing up a lot quicker so um, you know taking on grads for us is a really is a bonus um, but um, but for my personal experience yeah I mean I needed to go and do all those sort of things before settling down right Um and then it took me a while to settle down. As I said, I mean, I didn't even want to continue working at Park Bridge after a few months, but I did. And then they sort of backed me into my own business. And then, and then um, I started started S two M. And so, did you, apart from at the early wake ups and having to, you know, go into the city and all that, did you actually like the day to day work of recruitment as soon as you got into it, or was it something you were good at it but you didn't like it, or it took you a while to sort of come to terms with that? No, well, so. Love, I think I loved it, but I think I, you know, I just spent, what was it, eight or nine years just being a free agent, you know, floating in and out of university, managing bands, travelling the world, you know, sailing yachts, blah, blah, blah. So that forced, you know, eight till nine, you know, eight till six, city job um, was not was not a highly appealing, but when you really look back at it and think about it, it actually took me three months before I started to crack and get deals across the line. And and then when I started to get deals across the line and it, it must have all just clicked for me, um, it was so rewarding. So, I mean, I remember once ringing Sony Australia and and I just met an English, I just met, yeah, just met, an, it was actually Irish, met an Irish accountant, popped off the plane that morning, came straight to our office. I rang Sony Australia. CFO said he sounds great. You know, sent sent send his details over. I said I'll do better than that. He's actually in my office. I'm going to send him up right over now for an interview. So he basically went over, saw that saw the CEO of Sony Australia. I got a phone call an hour later from the CEO going, "Oh, that's awesome. He's he's brilliant. He's starting tomorrow. Who else have you got?" So you know, th- th- things like that was it's just like wow, you know. So when when it when it clicked for me, it was really good and really rewarding. Recruitment is not easy. You've got to manage. You know, selling selling photocopies is easy because the photocopier doesn't change their mind. The photocopier doesn't talk back, right? The customer does, but that's our client in recruitment. You know, that's the Sony, the head of Sony. Uh, whereas, you know, and you've got the candidate that can talk back as well. So once once you learn the art of managing that that process um, and just the, the success that you get is awesome. So I ended up getting lots and lots of Irish accountants across and having several of them working for us on contract basis and, um, you know, just managing those contractors on a, you know, we used to do fortnightly drinks with the contractors, get the clients out. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very rewarding. I, you know, I loved it. I mean, I still love the thrill of the chase of 
of, of placing candidates for clients now, you know. And you mentioned your boss sort of uh, helped back you into running your first business, proper sort of business. Um, was that the his initiative to sort of, hey, you should do this on your own or you should well, run a desk independently? Or was that your, you said you wanted no, to do no, it and he said, I'll help you? Or how, how did that come about? Well, well, it was definitely me, but it's, this is where it start, starts from because their advert, and I've still got it, said, come and work for us. There's three things in the advert that stood out. Come and work for, for us, opportunity to travel, um, opportunity to run your own desk and an opportunity for equity. So, you know, mean, travel meaning that they had offices in London and New Zealand, so you could go and travel and work in those offices. Opportunity to run your own desk, which means it was a startup. So they they were saying, come in and take a sector and do what you want. And then the opportunity for equity, they were, they'd always promised me equity. And then when push came to shove, the Australian managing director, Mike Hewitt, sort of said, no, you know, he's 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 too he's he's too hard. I can't work with him. We're not you know we're not bringing him into the business. And then Steve Hamlin, who was the founder and the owner of the company, he said, "Look, Mike, Mike's not going to cough anything up. But why don't we go start a, you know start another business?" So I ended up uh, signing a deal with a, a large travel agency, and we we started managing all of the all of the travellers through that business and 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 pushing them out into the market and placing those people. Um, so yeah, really, it was really me forcing Steve to go, you know, okay, well, Mike's not giving me equity, you know, do you want to back me into this business? So Steve backed me into it and, you know, that's, that's where that business, and I've still got a great relationship with Steve now as well. And how did it go? Like, like you said, you sort of, it was a very compelling ad and you sort of pointed to it and said, you know, there's equity on the line and then they indirectly sort of made that work. How was the actual process of running your own business once it was started? Yeah, so they so I went off and started Global Job Network with Steve, and um, well, basically that was awesome. But SARS happened, so SARS stopped international travel in its tracks, and basically that the the, the travel agency, the thirty travel agencies that we that we were running out of, sort of diminished down to a handful. Um, so I just went and off and did my own permanent recruitment. At, at, at that stage, and then we did wound that business up before I started S two M. So, so when COVID happened, was there a little bit of deja vu for you that you had been <laughs> seeing the sort of SARS um, in the early two thousands and um, yeah. so um, potentially, potentially, but you know, not not really because like SARS sort of hit hit Asia and SARS stopped sort of. Oh, look, I can't remember recall it too well. It was so many years ago, but. You know, it just stopped the international travellers coming in. It didn't stop the Aussies moving around. So it, it was sort of deja vu a little bit. But, you know, I don't think anyone's experienced what we... I mean, the thing about what I find about the whole COVID thing was that it was just the unknown that was that impacted everyone. So everyone just went, oh, what's going to happen? And we're all like, well, all of a sudden we might not have any business. So everybody just stopped in their tracks and held on to their money and, and you know, business just went to a went went to a standstill. So um, a little bit different, but some similarities. But no, I did not think back of SARS when 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 um, COVID hit because I think COVID was just such a massive shock. We we're only focused on the focused on the present at that time. Yeah, and so you mentioned that you pivoted away from that sector as the sector was hit so hard into sort of permanent recruitment. And was that just sort of professional roles within Australia that you then transitioned to after winding down that first business? 
Yeah, that's correct. Exactly. So I did a lot of work for the University Co-op Bookshop, um, helped them build their executive team. And then, um, and then, yeah, and then I realised, okay, I can't do business by myself. I was finding it really hard working in an office by myself and trying to grow a recruitment company by myself. And I asked several people to come into business with me because I had a good little business going and I asked several people and uh, we can name them all, but we won't shame them. Um, and no one wanted to. So I ended up going back and working for an old mate of mine. Um, and then I got invited to a Seek ball, which was a, the Seek recruitment website, you know, the job board ball. And I met a girl called Samantha Watts and we fell in love and then we got engaged and then we started S2M together. Um, and we're still, although we're not engaged anymore, we're still in business together, you know, 15 years later. And, and so you mentioned you, you had a similar value proposition, I imagine. You said get equity, run a desk, you know, travel, work in a great company. Well, why did no one want to take you up on that offer, do you think? Oh, uh, no. Well, the people I was asking I'd worked with before. So they're like, I'm, they're like, no, 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 too full on, too full on. I was, you know... I, I was I was young, heaps of energy. I actually drank too much alcohol in those days as well. Um, not that that was probably anything to do with people not wanting to join me. But the people I was asking, like Brad had already had his business started. A um, couple of other guys had already had their business started. So, um, and then I was asking mates like Matt Pell, old friends of mine, you know, that were just doing jobs that weren't what I would have considered a career. And, and he didn't consider it as a career either, but... Um, and even Sebastian, who's now in the US, he, he laughs. He he laughs. He's unemployed, and he laughs that he should be. He should he should have been the, the Samantha in my business now. But but um, yeah, look, I don't know why they didn't join us. You'd have to ask them. Okay, then once you've got Samantha on board, what was that sort of first twelve months like? You've been in business a little bit before, seen some ups and downs. How was that, that sort of a different, better or worse, the sort of second time around? Um, well, a lot better because what happened was that we started that business just in the lounge room floor in December 2005. Um, you know, we'd come off the, the there was a I think there was a recession in Australia in 2002. Um, you know, we had the dot com crash, so sort of three and four internet space was a bit oh you know what's that you know people were going oh the internet will die blah 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 anyway. So we, you know, we started S2M Digital in 2000, end of 2005 slash 2006, and you know we we'd both been in recruitment for, you know, how long have we both been in recruitment by then? Oh, well, I'd only been in recruitment since 2000, so I'd only been in recruitment for five years. Samantha had been in recruitment for a few more years longer than me, but she had some good clients, so she was already recruiting. I had clients, but what happened was basically when we when we opened the office in Australia Square. You know, News Limited called us and said, oh, we need to do this, that and the other. And the next, next thing you know, we've sort of placed 20 people at News Limited. We'd hired three staff. Um, and, you know, the business just took off in 2006. By the end of 2007, we'd moved offices. We were 15 staff. Um, you know, 2008, we had a bit of a slowdown with uh, with the GFC. But we were actually we actually had a record year there and we were a BRW Fast Starter in 2009 um, and sort of got up to about 20 staff at that stage. So, um, so look, you know, starting the business was what I wanted 
when I kept asking people to go into business for, with me when I finished up Global Job Network. And, you know, it, it was exactly, I, I would have thought Samantha was going to do, so when I was asking people to go into business with me, I was out there winning heaps of business and I needed someone in, I needed someone in, the, in the office as the engine room. I needed someone to create the website, create the accounting, create the marketing, manage the staff while I went won all the business. But when we started S2, it was in fact the opposite. I, I, I ran the accounts for six months. I was training the staff. I was doing the marketing. I built the website. So I was doing a lot of the hands-on work. I still had clients. Um, but then once all that was set, and while Samantha was recruiting and doing all the work for News Limited, but then sort of after about 12 months, we hired a, um, an accountant. Um, you know, Basically, I, be- I went back onto the tools and started doing sales as well. So which helped us grow, grow, grow quite rapidly in that second year, but um, but yeah, it was it was it was interesting. As I said, you know, Samantha just took the punt and just, just she she went, yeah, I'll go into business with you. She wanted to do her own business to start with anyway. She was determined to go out and do her own recruitment thing, um, and um, you know, it was really she, she was really the force behind starting it. But as you sort of so as you've said, I sort of latched onto that and we, we created this business together. Yeah, and, and then you've set up other entities under the S-Core group and you've actually got multiple uh, companies that are all fast starters, all growing rapidly at the same time, doing over $5 million in annual revenue. How did that come about? DSI and ASR is just different sort of uh, plays within the recruitment space or what was the thought process behind that? No, the, the, well, the thought process was, I mean, for example, ASR, when we opened our Melbourne office in 2009, um, a, a, another chap that used to work with me at Parker Bridge was running a recruitment company in Melbourne and I asked him to come and run our Melbourne office and he refused. And then a few couple of years later, I asked him to go into business with me again and he refused. And then, you know, five years later, I got a, got a phone call from him and he'd moved to Newcastle, my hometown. And I said, well, Al, this is the final offer. I'm going to offer you to go into business with me and we'll start a new company in Newcastle and it'll take off. And so, you know, the rest is history there. So, you know, that that came about by knowing that Alex was a good operator and someone that I could go into business with. Um, uh, that was ASR. DSI started because uh, I decided at some stage that I wanted to start an IT services business it's a good augmentation to a traditional recruitment company, um, but we're actually at, at DSI. We're not selling, um, you know, we're not body shopping. We're not selling recruitment services. We're actually selling services. So it's, it, you know, it's a different sale. It's a different sales cycle. It's a different sell. So it's, it, you know, it's good for the group, um, and it just add, adds adds a lot of value. And what was that learning curve like? You, you've been in recruitment. You've run different. Um... You know, recruitment businesses are all going well, adjusting to more of that service, pure services um, type of business. What what was that like? Again, was it harder than you thought? Was it easier than you thought? Yes, I know, harder than I thought. And look, it you know, it's not grown as rapidly as my business case and my planning said it would. And even you know, the, the MD that we've that we that we chose to go into business with, who's also our a shareholder, Nathan, who's phenomenal. Um, you know, but he's he's measured. He's a measured human, and he's as intelligent, and he's an exceptional operator. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's it's a totally different beast, and it's something that 
you know, even now on these weekly sales meetings, I, I get told to hang on, hang on, just slow down. This is, you know, we're not transactional. This is not recruitment. This is services. Just, you know, it's a different beast. We do a lot of work with government. We're also in some some large, you know, large IT businesses and and some some other corporates. But yeah, it's it's been a learning lesson for me in terms of the sales the, the sales cycle. Um, and um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different beast. And was there anything you did differently at ASR compared to like your first recruitment business that allowed you to grow so quickly? Yeah, good, good question. Anyone would think you prep prep this, but but you you know what? And Alex will tell you this. I gave him a list, and I think there was like there might have been forty five or forty six what I would do different to to S two M. And so yeah, there was so many things that we focused on when we started ASR that we that we made sure we put in place like just things that we never did at S2M because S2M just started in the lounge room and all of a sudden we had all these jobs on or I needed to build a website and I had to get an accounting package and, you know, I had to work out, I had to build a training manual. So all those things we with Alex and I at ASR, we just got everything into place before we started the business. So we had a really good platform to, to, to kick off. Um, so, so it yeah, sounds yeah. like more planning, more structure, more systems. Are they the main themes in those sort right. of forty-six point checklist that was sort of do this, yeah. don't do this, make sure you have this, do this before yeah. that, all, all that's almost like a procedure yeah. manual of uh, hard yeah, won lessons. Yeah, exactly. I think they say like it's a cookie cup, isn't it? Isn't that what that cookie cup means? You sort of so we sort of cookie cut what we were doing at S two M, you know, for the last. When did we so we started ASR three years ago? You know, we we'd already had a very successful operation going for twelve years at S two M, right? So we're just like, okay, good. This is what we do at S two M. Let's cookie cut this, but we want to do this, 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 this differently at ASR. Now, don't forget, ASR is a different market as well. S two M is based in Sydney. ASR is based in Newcastle. So there's some different. There were different peculiarities about the market that we had to change as well. Not just the systems and procedures that we cookie cut from S two M. You know. And what are some of those uh, market differences? Obviously, very different size markets. Are there other sort of uh, particular subtleties that might not be obvious to someone who hasn't operated in both markets? Yeah, so in Sydney, S2M is a digital recruitment company. We're, you know, we're the leaders in the space in in anything to do with what I just say. Anyone who designs websites, um, you know, UX, UI, front end, and then back end, so builds websites. And then anyone who sells websites, right? So sales or marketing, um, and and all of the you know the, all of the staff that are in that recruitment company, that's all they do. They live and breathe it. And and whereas and the, because that's because Sydney's got five five and a half million people in the, in the population, and it's a big sector. So in Sydney, S two M can be a specialist, and we are the leading specialist in that space, right? And have mm-hmm. been for years. So at Newcastle, because there's only two and a half. 250,000 people even in the re- even in the area it's not oh no so there's a million in the area when you take that Hunter Valley in and central coast but we can't we couldn't have in Newcastle we couldn't have we couldn't be a specialist so we're a generalist recruitment company in Newcastle and so the each staff member has their own desk so one person does IT one person does admin one person does marketing one person does um, accounting and finance and one person does engineering and construction. So that was another lesson for me to work out because when you're training, mentoring, and growing businesses like that, it's it 
it's not easy because so in S2M, we're a specialist in the space. We know everyone. Whereas up here, if you're running a construction desk, um, you know, one consultant who's supposed to know the whole market, it's it's a little bit harder to map that market, make sure they know all of the candidates. Um, there are just some little peculiarities around that. Also, therefore, you've got to have, you know, five specialists, right, in each of those, you know, or one in each area, right? So you're mentioning how Newcastle's a quite a different market with the size and the scale. Um, in general, people are talking about a lot of labour market changes. Are you seeing any of those changes based on how you operated Newcastle previously? Are more people moving up there? Are more you know Newcastle employers open to or Sydney employers open to people working remotely? And the location is less of a difference than it used to be. Yes, so in in Sydney we've definitely seen an influx of sorry in Newcastle we've just we have seen an influx of candidates coming from um, you know from 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 Sydney or Melbourne wanting to move move out of those bigger cities. I think that's that whole COVID COVID move. Um, you know Newcastle also being a mining centric uh, city and region, we've seen some good. Um, Good, good growth in the employment market across those, you know, that circular economy, that uh, that, that that green energy sector, um, which is really promising, um, you know, to to to, which is obviously, you know, the, the um, uh, you know, taking taking on with the with the against the coal mining businesses, etc. So, um, and and that's being led by by organisations in Newcastle to ensure that. That there is future employment for you know when when and if these mines or or like the coal the coal, the, the power the coal powered fire stations that are closing down, so so that's some changes in the labour market there. Um, but yeah, I mean, no one could have picked what we've had the last twelve months. It's just been unbelievably busy. So the the thing is, there's just no candidates around. Candidates are hard to find. Candidates have twenty different jobs to choose when they do have interviews. Um, you know, our business models changed in the way we recruit. We, you know, I think 80% of our work now is retained, whereas pre-COVID, it was the other way around. So, you know, we just we just can't work on, on contingency-based roles where we're not guaranteed on getting paid. Just the, the mere fact that by the time you go to the market, search the market, find the candidate, send them to the client, yeah, and then if the client takes too long and the candidates take other jobs, you've done you've done you know half the work. You need to be paid. So our our models have changed post COVID in in that way. Um, I think our rates have sort of increased a little bit too, not not exorbitantly, but they have moved up. Um, where you know pre COVID. We were always cognizant of price. There was companies that were always competing on price and driving the price down. I think everybody's needing, you know, higher margins these days. Wages have increased. All our wages have increased, um, just to keep the employees really, which so is we, interesting. So we just say. I was just going to say, so we just say that sort of the, a lot of employers are now seeing the value of a good recruitment partner more than they used to when they have a few and it's all contingency and it's, um, like you said, it's sort of, it was a lot, um, they're in a stronger position, whereas now as a market's a bit, a lot harder, um, they're paying more, they're partnering on a um, retained basis and, and they're understanding the value of having a, a really good recruiter in their corner. 
Do you want a job, Derek? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you've, you've, you hit the nail right on it. Right on it. That's perfect. Exactly what it is. It's sort of, you know, they've now realised exactly what do we do? Oh, golly, that's what that recruiter does. No wonder. Yes. Okay, cool. Let's retain them. Let's work on a relationship basis with this recruiter. Let's not dick them around. Let's not have two or three recruiters working the same role. Let's just give it to one recruiter. They'll map the market. They'll come to us with the candidates. They'll control the process. Job done. You know, new employee, well done. So, yeah, you're right. Clients have found that. Um, one other thing on that whole job market thing is, you know, the last year or, or even before that, you know, post-COVID, when we came out of lockdown, all the clients were doing the the interviewing remotely and onboarding remotely. I just found it amazing. So it was, and it, it happened really easily. Clients just, I remember during COVID, we had a couple of deals where we, clients were like, oh, no, we'll onboard. And I'm like saying to my general managers, really? Is that what they're doing? I couldn't imagine not meeting someone that you were going to hire and into your business that's part of your brand, that's part of your culture that, you know, that you only meet on a video. So. I just, you know, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal change, and everyone knows that it's been a phenomenal change. Of, you know, remember five years ago we all talked about oh this telecommuting thing. Mm-hmm. Remember, remember it was like oh wow we're going to get fast internet speed so we can now telecommute. Mm. You know, and that, and everyone was thinking that would happen what probably you know, 2020, 2025, oh, no, yeah, 2025 or 2030 or whatever. Well, yeah, but sorry, it's here now. It happened in 2020 thanks to COVID, right? And now we've got, I think, you know, 80, 80 to 90% of our clients are all work from home definitely three days a week. Some of them are still 100% work from home. A lot of that's changing now, though, and a lot of, you know, some of, some of the clients are mandating back in the office full time. But look, they can't do that because they they're not they're not hiring the staff because staff are going to where they can get that flexible flexible arrangement, um, which I think makes sense, right? But you know, we provide an environment where our staff can work it, work where they want to work and how they want to work it. We've got one guy that does five days in the office, so and that's the style I like as well. You know, I although um, um, I do enjoy working from home sitting here now, but um, but yeah, I do. I, I love working in the office. I, I'm, I'm, you know, it gets me focused. Yeah, and so you've we've talked about sort of how yourself as a recruitment business has changed, how your clients have adapted. H- how do you see the sort of labour market evolving? You mentioned the hybrid is sort of quite popular, obviously, and ongoing. Um, are there any other sort of predictions you have for what directions the labour market's going? Is it getting tighter and tighter? Has it hit a peak and then it starts to sort of go back more towards how it was or is it sort of anyone's guess at this point? Yeah, good question. No, I think, look, I think the government will have to be forced to hire more um, people in their visa office and start start signing off these visas for overseas in, overseas employees to come into Australia. Um, so if they can ramp up their visa processing times, we'll see um, an easing in the in the in the you know restricted employment market, and, and and it starts down it starts down at that bottom you know it starts down at the the fruit it starts down at the back the, the, the it starts down at the university students right so if they they're coming back into the country they're out working in cafes you know and that pushes up the tree same with if we can get overseas workers to come in and do the fruit picking that pushes up the tree so you know all if we can get back to that you know two hundred thousand uh, consistent 
overseas workforce that comes back into Australia, that'll push everything back up the tree. So what we've found, or what these are my theory anyway, my theory is that we lost all those workers back to their home country. They're not really coming back yet. But so therefore, you know, um, we, you know, the, the the jobs have been mopped up by everyone everyone in Australia. Or well, then again, everybody says that they, they haven't been able to employ those people. So we're, so that so that so that the jobs aren't getting done. But I think once they once we fill up that 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 uh, that that lower level two hundred thousand people, um, it'll start to push back up the market more into the you know from the blue collar into the white collar. Mind you, I suppose it's the white collar that have that have left the country as well, um, or that didn't come back. Um, so yeah, look predictions. Um, I think I think we need immigration opening up and the visa statuses to change, and and to, to help the labour market. But um, but you know I re- I was read an article the other day or, or read a post the other day somewhere this guy saying isn't it a beautiful thing everywhere you go there's an ad for a jo- for a vacancy, and he was saying you know when I and it's exactly I remember this when I left university in nineteen when I left school. 89, went to uni, 90, 90, 91. I remember saying to mum, I'm dropping out, I'm going to have time off, and she's like, go get a job. And I was like, okay. Well, 91, you couldn't get a job. There was no jobs. It was a recession, right? So, you know, you'd have, whereas now, this is what this guy's saying, he remembers back then, there was no ads. But now there's an ad on everywhere you look, everybody's hiring. So he's, he's saying it's a beautiful thing that, um, you know, all our kids can get jobs and everybody's employed and what a lovely thing. So don't open up the immigration don't open up the visas don't saturate the market with the overseas workers let 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 um you know let the aussies take it so maybe labor will will run that will run that way they are you know they're pretty switched on and and they they're good in in that sense of things in terms of looking after the unions and looking after the labor market but yeah um i hope that answered your question yeah and i think it's um it's an interesting time because some people are citing a lot of economic sort of issues, but like you mentioned, it's very low unemployment and it's an odd situation. Whereas in the early nineties, you know, a lot of economic issues, um, but also very high unemployment, which you'd expect um, when the economy is really bad. So I think a lot of people aren't sure what way it's sort of going ahead. No, I don't th- look, there's a lot of cash. So they printed so much money. We've all got, everybody's cashed up. You know, they were handing out money left, right and center. So, uh, and they still are. Um, but then again, I read today that there's high. What, what is it? There's there's a huge amount of people on unemployment benefits. So you just, I just don't know. Like I was talking to, I was talking to a client from, you know, a senior senior executive from Audi the other day, and he's he's just saying, look, it's just the world's an interesting place at the moment. It's it's all we're all learning so much. I mean, they're they're facing uh, supply chain. And logistics issues with with importing and exporting, and then they're facing issues trying to get local produce made. Um, I'm talking to them because I've started a non-alcoholic beer business um, last year, and uh, we're about to supply them with our with our non-alcoholic beer. So it's been in, it, that's another interesting angle. Yeah, so really diversifying away there from uh, on, in addition to the recruitment and the other services into a consumer facing uh, product. Yes, that's right. So it's a now this one's a cracker because I went sober in uh, 5th of January 2020 and um, decided that if I was going to 
try to do a 12 months of no drinking alcohol, I better um, I better turn this into a, a passion project because we all know, you know, if you've got a hobby or a passion, then it's not not hard. It's just it becomes something you enjoy doing. So I started a Beneficial Beer Co., which is a non-alcoholic beer brand, and it's uh, we launched into the market in March this year. We won an international bronze medal for the beer, and um, and I'm now I'm now I'm now in the FMC. Well, I'm now targeting FMCGs, but I'm now uh, yeah I'm in the liquor business. I'm in the and what am I in? I'm in the I'm in the food production business. And but this is hang on, Derek. This, what business am I in? This is the thing. Recruitment was so easy. It was well, it's not easy, but it was okay. Pick the phone up, get some clients, build a website. You know. Um, hire some staff, train them, mentor them, manage them, build a brand, um, you know, and then just just map the market and m- make sure you know every single best talent out there. So that that's great. But this beer business is like, okay, I've got to first I've got to develop the beer, I've got to then produce the beer, I've then got to transport the beer, I've then got to sell the beer, I've then got to market the beer, I've then got to um, you know, I've then got to collect the debts on the beer, I've then got to um, yeah, you know, and also then trying to sell the beer. It's like in Australia, there's one company called Endeavour Group. It owns 50%. It sells 50% of liquor in Australia, whether it's through Dan Murphy's or uh, BWS or the or the ALH, the hotel chains they own. So mm. if you're not in with those, if you're not in with those guys, you're losing 50% of the market. Um, but yeah, I didn't really. Um, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't have too much knowledge about all of that before I started it, but we're getting there. We're in conversations with them, so that's good. And they like what we're doing. They like the beer, but um, it's a slow burn and it's um, going quite well. And is it a, a lifelong commitment you've made to, to not drink alcohol or is it just kind of creating an alternative and you did a one-year challenge or um, what's your current sort of personal commitment on that? Yeah, look, so I had a problem with alcohol for several years um, and. Uh, and finally, and I admitted it to myself. I mean, it took me about, it took me 10 years of struggling. In fact, it was longer than 10. I think I really knew in 2000 and I started seeking help in 2000 and I stopped into it. It took me 20 years, really. Um, but I knew, I knew I needed to stop drinking alcohol and I knew I needed, I knew, I knew I needed to break the cycle. So I did the, I, did, I ended up doing 445 days without a drink. But and what happened was I ended up uh, in 2020 when I stopped drinking, I tried to start this non-alcoholic beer business. I couldn't find anyone to make beer for me. So I decided I'll go back to school and learn learn how to make beer. So I, I moved the family at the end of 2020 to Brisbane and went to TAFE there for six months to learn brewing. And of course, we're at TAFE, learning how to brew beer, working and the t- you know, we, were, we were doing two days in a brewery and we were making beer. I ended up tasting the beer and I ended up I ended up drinking again. So, but since then, I have I've been a very controlled drinker, um, and had have had large periods of of you know I've had you know, periods where I haven't drunk for six eight weeks at a time. So my drinking is is a is a it's a totally different situation than it was beforehand. Um, but yeah, look, it's a, I mean it's a lifelong ambition to to, to keep that that alcohol, that ethanol uh, intake down. Um, and um, it's something I, I continue to work on on a daily basis. 
Yeah, and as if we zoom out a bit to speak on sort of entrepreneurship in Australia more generally, of running multiple businesses, um, dealing with a lot of business owners, what do you think Australian entrepreneurs are doing really well and where do you see them potentially lagging behind other countries? So doing really well? Oh, rough. golly, that's a good question. I really, I'm, I think when, so lagging behind other countries, I really couldn't answer that. What we're doing really well, I think the tech, you know, our tech, our tech entrepreneurial um, ecosystem is phenomenal. So, you know, uh, the, the the accelerators, the incubators, and the and the you know the the early stage investment that's in the in the tech space is is exceptional, and I think it's helped us uh, reduce the brain drain. So I think you're getting less people. You know, shooting overseas to start their startup. So, you know, the tech space is phenomenal, and I think that's rolled off into into also you know the um, uh, the the high tech space. So the space. So in Adelaide, we're doing really well down there with space technology. Um, but I also I also think that you know that entrepreneurial space has come from government. Some look, the government hasn't put a lot of money behind it, but it's just helped in 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 certain places with. With some policies and procedures, and you know, the uh, some tax tax rebates for early stage investing. Uh, you know, they're funding some of these startup hubs. Um, so the government policies have been quite good, um, and um, and I think you know, I think there's a great little entrepreneurial space in Australia. It's doing well. I just think what we don't do well is we just don't have a big enough market. You know, like. If I look at if I look at the non-alcoholic beer sector, for example, so you know the, the, the number one non-alcoholic, although I'm not, I'm not talking taste here, let's just talk brand, right? Is a bet is is athletic brewing in the US now? Why they got fifty percent of the market? They started five years ago. How big's their market? Well, they got three hundred and eighty million people that live in the market. Um, what percentage of those don't drink? Blah blah blah. What have we got in Australia? You know, twenty five million people. So um it's yeah that's that for me you know if um you know if I had my time again I would have gone and started this business in the US in a, in a much bigger market segment but um I was talking to someone yesterday about that and maybe that could happen and if you zoom out maybe we will be there at some stage down the track when we take the learnings from this smaller market into into a larger market and um see if we can dominate there as well yeah, and I think that ability to do business globally is sort of more possible than it used to be. So even if a brand starts in a smaller country like in Australia or Singapore and Israel, uh, Sweden, like a Spotify, you know, it is possible, especially if it's a tech business, but even a physical product business in the same yeah. way, you know, big American businesses have uh, reach all and distribution globally. There's no reason yeah. why a successful Australian business couldn't do the same. No, yeah, that's right. You're right. But look, you, you, you asked a good question there. I, I, you know, I don't know what what we're doing wrong here. I don't think we, you know, if you'd asked me this year, a few years ago, I would talk about, and and when it was mainly around recruitment, it was education. We weren't educating anyone how to how to how to do recruitment. I think there's still I think there's still a massive lack of education in that space. And you know, we we, we all know, what, you know, the talk is that the edu- education's been an issue and I don't think the Liberal government's assisted with their policies and policies what they've done in, in education. So so I think education's probably a key that we need to have a really good deep look at and get get 
back to basics again or, you know, I think education is probably where we're lacking. Yeah, and, and if someone, if you're speaking to someone today who's sort of at that pivotal 18 to 20-year-old point in their life, um, like we are speaking about earlier in the episode for yourself, what, what advice would you give someone who's 18 to 20 years old today? Not sure, maybe, again, do they travel? Do they go straight into work? Do they start a business? Um, what, what sort of uh, advice would you give someone at that point in their life right now? Yeah, so I would give the advice I would give them is just get out and try anything and try something. And just and and work right and get and get into the workforce, um, or or you know if you if you, if if it's you want to get educate yourself, just get into an educational system and get into a, a, a and start studying right because if you get in and get in and work out that's not for you, you'll then move gravitate to something that is to you. So you know just get get out and get it get into it and get things done and make it happen. So but but at the end of the day. I would advise people to find a passion and find something they enjoy doing because, you know, I don't think I'll ever stop working. I don't want to stop working. I need to keep my keep active. I want to keep fit and healthy and keep my mind active. So if I'm going to do it, I want to make sure I'm enjoying what I do, right? Um, so my advice to anyone young is to, you know, ideally find something they enjoy doing. I mean, you know, look at the professional sports stars, that, that they they work so hard to become professional at a young age and they love it, right? And then that's just their life. They love it. And even some of these actors that work out they want to be an actor at an early age and they hours and hours and hours, they're practising and training. So, um, you know, I never really knew. I knew I wanted to have a business, but I didn't know which business it was. And I, and I'm, and I, and I still, you know, well, at the moment it's I love the beer business and, I'm you know, the vision and the goal is to have my own brewery. So, you know, we're working towards that. Um, and, you know, we put the steel caps on every day and go into the brewery and lift things, move things, create things, um, you know, and, and, and design things and, you know, and then sell it and watch people be happy with it and watch the satisfaction and make people happy, right? So, but, if, you know, if, you're at a, if at a young age you can find something that you enjoy doing, like you're laughing. As I said, <coughs> it took me years um, and and I'm, maybe I've just found what I really enjoy doing now, and I'm you know 51 next week. So um, you know, try to source something that you enjoy doing and go for it. Don't stop as well, like because life's hard and there's always knockbacks, and you know you just got to keep going. Yeah, and, and so looking at the sort of uh, medium term vision for the Escort Group, and I don't know if you're. Uh, beer company is part of that group but but where do you sort of see the escort group going in the next five to ten years is it extra business lines that you'd like to spin off yeah. different segments is it incubating um other business owners and, and bringing people with yeah. equity or, yeah. or all the above yeah, I th- no I, th- I think i think at some stage we will try to incubate other business other other business owners and bring them into the group and and if it makes sense to add that value um but we'll just continue to grow the brands that we've got um and um, you know, I think I think DSI's got a huge opportunity to grow into a, a much larger business, um, and um, that's probably where it's at at the moment. You know, I mean, you know, the thing is, trying to find staff is the hardest part for us at the moment as well, and that's why we need we need some visa restrictions to be reduced to allow the to allow experienced recruiters to come back into the country. And if the government can handle that, then we'll get more of the English recruiters coming back to Australia, which can help us grow the businesses. 
Yeah, and, and do you have any final thoughts or words for the audience? No, I don't. I just would like to thank you very much for listening if you got this far. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much, David. Okay, nice one, Derek. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.